Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, welcome to New Books in German Studies, part of the New Books Network of Podcasts. My name is Michael O'Sullivan from Marist College, and I'm one of the channel's new co-hosts. Today we will talk with Lori Marhofer. She's an accomplished scholar of the history of sexuality in Germany. She is assistant professor of history at the University of Washington. I'm particularly excited to have Lori on the show today because we will discuss her most recent book entitled Sex in the Weimar Republic. German Homosexual Emancipation and the Rise of the Nazis, published with the University of Toronto Press in 2015. Welcome to the show, Lori. Thanks. Thanks, Michael. Um, thanks for having me. Sure, absolutely. So I'd like to talk uh, to start the interview by asking you to share with the audience how you became interested both in the field of German studies, but also in the history of s- sexuality. I wish I had a more exciting answer, but I took some really good classes as an undergraduate towards the end of my undergraduate career. I took a seminar on fascism and I got really excited about anti-democratic politics um, and that led me to an interest in Weimar as this moment when democracy falters and crumbles. Um, and then I had a, a interest that was just as strong in the history of sexuality from college coursework. I was, I was finishing up as an undergraduate right at the end of the nineties. And there was one course in the history department on, I think it was called the history of homosexuality. And it was a seminar and, Uh, We also read Foucault's History of Sexuality in a different class, Um, actually in the Great Books class, which is kind of cool. We read, you know, we started with Plato and we got to Foucault kind of (laughs) um, late in the class. But um, reading that stuff really got me interested in um, (laughs) how at moments in the past, people had such a different experience of sexuality and desire and gender and how that could be so historically contingent. Uh, So I ended up going to graduate school with those two related interests. And uh, I didn't realize until I'd been in grad school for, I think, a year and a half that German history was actually a really good field to be in if you wanted to look at queer history uh, because Germany had this really early gay rights movement. Um, so, yeah, so after the, the after that, I sort of went on from there. And this book, uh, Began Life, is my dissertation. And, um, yeah. And um, before we get too deeply in the book, uh, I was wondering if I could ask you a question about uh, lexicon. And as an historian of sexuality, you are always balancing the terminology of the 1920s and 1930s with the vocabulary that queer theorists have developed in more recent decades. I mean here sort of the difference between using terms uh, like prostitute, which would have been done in the 1920s, versus sex worker, which we might be more uh, prone to use today, um, gay rights versus homosexual emancipation, uh, transvestite versus transgender, 
I found it really interesting how you managed this balance as you wrote the book. And I was wondering if you'd talk a little bit about that and if you had any advice for uh, you know, someone like myself as an interviewer or as a teacher and how we uh, sort of discuss the history of sexuality. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, th- yeah, that is uh, a really interesting problem in the history of sexuality. It comes up in other fields too, but it's really central in uh, particularly queer history or, or gay history or trans history. And I was trained to be extremely scrupulous about using historical terminology and not using terms that are ahistorical. So, and people will really go to extremes in my field to avoid what seem to us to be ahistorical terms. So people will say, and, and in other fields too, instead of saying gay men or homosexual men, they'll say men who desired men. Um, I wanted to use the term queer in my dissertation and my committee uh, made me take it out. <laughs> and you, yeah, um, that this was, you know, sort of the late 2000s. Um, no, I guess the mid 2000s. They they made me take it out in favor of non-normative, because that was thought to be more um, less historically specific. And I, there there is a longstanding, it is sort of the foundational debate of the field of gay history is the question of whether there there were gay people in the past or or when does when does the identity homosexual or the identity i would say transvestite because that's the first term that's used in german to describe people who are not only gender nonconforming but gender transitioning so they're they're the the sex that they were assigned at birth is not their true sex and they're seeking to live as their true sex. Those people initially called themselves transvestites, which is, which is not, and that, that word in English today doesn't mean that at all. Um, uh, anyway. Um, uh Oh, I lost my train of thought. Uh, yeah. So this question, you know, the debate about like John Boswell's book and whether there were, uh, people who not only had same-sex sex, but whose identity, who had an identity, so that identity existed in the ancient past, right? Uh, and that it was bound up with what we think of as sexuality in the ancient past and how far back that goes. And that that debate about when identity starts is actually still ongoing. There, A book just came out that really defends the the position that's often associated with Boswell, that there have always been gay people and they just were calling themselves different names um, versus the position you find in Foucault that um, these things are very historically contingent and tied to the 19th century and to psychiatry. Um, so because of that, we're, if, you're, if you're in this field, you're always encouraged to be very careful about what terminology you use. But I, and I agree with that, um, but I find it, I think that there's a, a downside to being hyper scrupulous about terms and to seeking and to trying to find these perfect terms that are supposedly historically neutral because um, you're all, we're writing for the people who are alive now. Um, we're all, we're writing for readers. We're translating the past for the present or we're w- what we're doing is relating to the past, but the, the, a relationship has two sides to it. It has a reader and it has, you know, the people in the past. Um, and I think it's important to use terminology 
you know, that um, for one thing, when you're teaching, uh, like I taught a whole class where I was very, very careful to only use the historically appropriate terms for the stuff that I was talking about. So when I was talking about the 19th century, I would only say homosexual. And then I, and then I switched over to gay when I got to the 1950s. <laughs> um, and, and I got to the 1950s kind of late in the course. And I, I had a discussion with the students at the end of the course where they um, talked about how the word homosexual is, is really difficult for them to hear and that they find that term troubling and offensive. And honestly, so do I. If anyone ever called me a homosexual, I would be really... I wouldn't. I don't welcome that term at all, and I don't use it in my daily life. And so, I think when you're teaching, um, it's it's something of a different problem. I think it's good to make students aware of these debates and of the need to be historically specific. But then, I think it's also okay to be a little bit more fast and loose with terminology. And I and I I do feel that way also about historical work. Sometimes this the the. Um, See, I said I wasn't going to go on and on, but I actually have a lot to say about this. Um, the, 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 I've encountered this um, not only with my dissertation committee, but with other people editing my work. And I, I wouldn't say this about the dissertation committee, but in other moments, it has really felt just downright homophobic. The, the insistence on the part of editors that certain terms cannot be used that, um, and that historically specific terms have to be used. And I also find some of the really extreme versions of the argument that we can't identify people who are now dead as gay or queer or trans because they didn't self-identify that way and that we're assuming this identity category in order to say something about ourselves and we're really we're doing this kind of ahistorical violence to the past. Sometimes that argument, when it's taken to its really extreme forms, I mean, it feels inaccurate to me. It feels like it's erasing some of the history of sexuality. Um, I mean, I, I, and I would, you know, just kind of say this about it. Um, and if you're writing about a historical time and place when these identity categories absolutely do exist, so if you're writing about ancient Mesopotamia, yeah, I think you have to be really careful. But if you're writing about Berlin in the 20s, when pretty much everybody was aware that there was an identity category homosexual, not everybody identified with it, not everybody who had same-sex sex identified with it, but... Um, you know, I think that you can reflect that complexity in what you're writing and then go on to use identity categories that just translate better for your readers. Um, in addition, I really believe in, in queer history as an analytical practice. Um, so I and I, I therefore find it useful to use the term queer when talking about historical subjects, not to identify them as members of like the activist community in the 90s, but rather uh, to use queer as a as a in the sense of analyzing the difference between normative and non-normative sexual practices, which is um, comes out of sort of the theory that's done around that term in in the 90s and then also in the 2000s. There's that social text introduction that I find really helpful um, in thinking about what queer means. So yeah, it's so I. Um, I'm a, I'm a little bit more flexible in terminology than a lot of other historians are. And I hope that other people will kind of maybe jump on that bandwagon a little bit. Um, I, I think the field of the history of sexuality 
has been too obsessive over this question of like, when does identity start and where is identity? There, I, I worry that it's taking us away from other equally or more important questions um, to keep kind of rehashing that. But yeah, those are those are sort of my unfocused thoughts about that. I thought they were pretty focused myself. So um, I, I really actually enjoyed uh, hearing you comment on that. So I really appreciate it. Um, so I thought uh, a good way to begin to talk about the book, and I and I would share with our listeners that I really... Oh, actually, oh. could I say one more thing, Michael? I'm oh, sorry. please, Laura. Yeah, yeah, please. Yeah. Oh, this, I, actually, I think this is the, the best piece of, like, the best part of that argument about getting away from hypersensitivity about terminology. And this is in the, the book somewhere, but there's no perfect neutral term. Um, that's that's not ahistorical. Every field in history is using terms that don't perfectly apply to the past that we're analyzing. That 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 that's what historians do. It's because history is a practice of translating the past for the present or narrating it for the present. Um, so that that's kind of what I mean. That when these arguments get taken to extremes, I wonder what what's really motivating them. Because I don't think you see this in other fields. This demand that we find this perfect term, like you know, men who have sex with men instead of just saying gay men um, while acknowledging that maybe they didn't identify that way. Or, um, I mean, I do think sometimes men who have sex with men is a really useful term. Um, but yeah, I, th- there is no perfect terminology. I think that's my, my best contribution to that, which is in a footnote somewhere in my book. So <laughs> <laughs> maybe be in the main text. Yeah, yeah, good. Well, uh, th- thank you. Yeah. yeah, I appreciate that. Um, so I thought, uh, you know, so I, I guess just moving into the book, I, I would share with the audience that I, I really think this is a superb book in the sense that it's very layered, uh, has multiple different arguments. There are different ways in which it builds on pre-existing literature, but also makes a lot of new claims. It's very ambitious in many ways. And we're going to get to a lot of that. But the way you introduce the book in the introduction, I think, is a really useful way to maybe introduce it to the audience. And that is you start in some ways with the stories of two very prominent activists and intellectuals from the 1920s, Magnus Hirschfeld, who many listeners may have heard of, and Kurt Hiller. Uh, Can you introduce the audience to who these two men were, maybe how they differed and why that's so important to the book? Yeah, um... Yeah, so uh, Magnus Hirschfeld, as probably many listeners know, was a German doctor who um, came from a middle-class Jewish family and in the late 19th century got very interested in questions of sexuality and the science of sexuality and co-founded one of probably... You know, I never. I, I always am like, should I really say it's the first gay rights group, <laughs> or the first the first group advocating social and legal toleration of homosexuals? Maybe somebody's going to find an earlier one. In which case, um, I take it back. But uh, yeah, it, it's um, the Scientific Humanitarian Committee, which was founded in 1897 in Herschel's apartment in Charlottenburg, um, and he went on to be the most along with Havelock Ellis, the most prominent advocate of toleration of homosexuals of the early 20th century. He was known, um, you know, pretty well known throughout 
the world. Um, he wrote, he after the Nazis took power, Hirschfeld, or actually he had already left. Anyway, he went on a world tour in the early 1930s and while he was away, the Nazis came to power and he never went back. But he, he traveled all over the world meeting with people and he was really known in scientific communities. And he's also pretty well known in the popular press if you look in the American press. Um, Heike Bauer has a great new book on Herschel. actually, if people are interested, that covers the world tour and a lot of other cool stuff. But um, Hirschfeld spent his life trying to use science to prove that what he called homosexuality was a natural, non-pathological condition. And he thought that if he could prove that, or if he could show that others had proved that, then social and legal toleration would follow. Um, so the other guy who is much less well known is Hirschfeld. Is so he was on? Did you see he was on Transparent, the the Netflix series? He's in the second season. I actually, I actually did see that. Yeah, <laughs> I, yeah. It's a conversation for another time, but I'd be curious about what your thoughts were on season two of that uh, that series. But uh, in yeah, any case, I'm going to try to write an article about it. It's it was super. It's so exciting when you, I don't know if you've ever had one of your people like get on TV. You're like, oh my God, <laughs> this is my moment. And then no one calls you and you're like, ah. Um, I mean, he's not just my person. Lots of people have written on him. Anyway, so the other guy is Kurt Hiller, who's also from a, a from like a wealthy Jewish family and uh, worked closely with Hirschfeld for many years in the Scientific Humanitarian Committee they eventually had something of a falling out, um, but they worked closely together. And, and Hiller, Hirschfeld um, died in 1935, but Hiller um, lived uh, into the, oh gosh, when did he die? I think, eh, I think in the 70s. Um, anyway, he praised, he wrote me- memoirs late in his life and he really praised Hirschfeld in them. I, I, always want to, and didn't really criticize him in his memoirs. Um, so I, my book really poses them as antagonists, and I, and they certainly were in this period, but they also had a close you know, working relationship. Um, Hiller was trained as, he was trained in law, and he was an intellectual and a journalist, and made a, really made a name for himself as a member of the non-affiliated left in Weimar Germany. So leftists who were not comfortable with the communist they're, they're too far left for the social democrats um and they're not comfortable with the communists although he did have ties to communists um and he's a really interesting guy uh he, homosexual emancipation was only one of the things that he put his energy into he had a some very uh unusual ideas about politics he was suspicious of democracy uh, he sometimes really flirts with the fascist right. So he published a piece sort of praising Mussolini at one point. Um, and then there's a new biography of Hiller that's out. Um, Ian Grimmer also wrote a cool dissertation on him. So if people are interested. Um, but anyway, he was a part of this movement for homosexual emancipation as well, but he had a very, very different perspective than Hirschfeld did, although they worked together really closely. Hiller had this ethical legal analysis that led him to argue that the the individual person had a right uh, basically to be left alone by state and society, that you have a right over your body. Um, th- this will be 
this is it's very similar to what the abortion rights movement argues in Weimar. So people who've read Atina Grossman's book will um, will make that connection, um, or who've read other works on that. But um, so he wrote his dissertation on uh, a number of cases where he argued the individual had a right over over his or herself. One of them was suicide, um, and another was homosexuality. Um, so both of these. Uh, activists were in favor of repealing the sodomy law and of getting rid of social stigma around same-sex sexuality, but they had really different ways that they wanted to go about that. And Hiller in the Weimar moment ends up being far more leftist than Herschel, despite Hiller's kind of right of center tendencies that also they're coinciding. But on um, homosexual politics, he ends up... Um, really arguing uh, in favor of uh, male prostitutes or male sex workers. In, and Hirschfeld um, does not, I argue, um, see the struggle of male sex workers as all that closely related to the struggle to emancipate the respectable middle-class homosexual. And Hiller sees them as closely related. So in, I, I, I do what I, I think, you know, is... Well, I read Hiller as somebody who's much more radical and who works together with more radical figures like Richard Linsard. And that tension between a more radical queer politics, although they're not using the word queer, um, and a, and a, a more conservative um, you know, queer homosexual emancipationist politics uh, personified by Hirschfeld is, is a tension that runs throughout the book. Um, and I think one of the contributions of the book is to say you know, homosexual emancipation was was conservative in a lot of ways um, and was in bed with moderately conservative projects like eugenics. Um, but there were people who dissented from that and who wanted a more radical revision of social norms. And they were part of that movement as well. And they fought that there was, the, the movement arguably kind of fell apart in the early 1930s over those tensions. Um, yeah, so those are the two, the two of the main figures in the book, Herschel and Hiller. Yeah, and you you introduce them in the introduction, and one thing I really like about the book is in each chapter you really seem to have, um, a, you know, personal stories of either prominent individuals or sometimes more everyday people that sort of uh, can really capture the reader's attention and sort of tell tell something of a story as you make your your more analytical arguments as well. Now, one of the, it seems like one of the major arguments of the book, which is related to Hirschfeld, is when you talk about this, uh, so what you call the Weimar Settlement on Sexual Politics. And that seems like, you know, there's multiple arguments going on here in this book, but it seems like that, you know, is the real focal point. So I was wondering if you could explain what the settlement was. I know it's somewhat related to some of the things you've already said about Hirschfeld, but could you explain uh, for the audience what the settlement was and why identifying it as such an important contribution? Yeah. Okay. So the Weimar settlement, as I define it, is a, is a particular, is a deal that is struck between a number of contesting parties in the Weimar political scene and it offers a particular kind of sexual freedom to homosexuals, chiefly to homosexuals, but also th th there are other, I think the, the bulk of my analysis is about how this affects 
same-sex desiring individuals. Look how careful I'm being with terminology now that I said that. I said I was liberated from it. And now I'm like, no. um, uh, yeah. And it has, a, so the settlement has a number of parts. Um, but my, my point is basically that we think of Weimar as this liberatory moment and it does offer liberation, but it's a certain kind of liberation. It only applies to some people and it's liberation for some these people at the expense of other people. So the settlement offers um, the repeal of the sodomy law, which was huge. So the decriminalization of consenting adult male-male sex. But the price of that is a crackdown on male prostitution that was pretty draconian. They were going to prevent, they were going to lock people up for up to five years for selling sex. And that's also a consensual adult relationship. Um, but if it was com the, the commercialization of sex was what troubled, was more troubling to more people than was simple male homosexual sex. So it's the, it's the freedom to have a certain kind of consensual sex in private. The state was tolerant of a very limited queer and trans public sphere. So there are homosexual and transvestite magazines. There are homosexual and transvestite clubs and um, bars that are allowed to operate, especially in certain cities. Although you, you, you even see in, I looked at Munich as well as Berlin, and even in Munich, there's toleration for a very limited public subcultural sphere. Um, but the, there's a cost to that. Um, so there are, you know, the, a lot of people who work on this know this 1926 law on schmutz und schund, on trash and filth. Uh, the, and it's a pretty mild form of censorship that says that if your publication is designated as dangerous to children, it, it has, it can only be, it can't be displayed in front of the, in the front counter. It has to be behind the counter um, out of, and it can't be sold to minors. It had to, has to kind of be out of reach of teenagers. Um, and, and a lot of the homosexual publications are subject to that restriction. Um, at the same time, there's a, there's a decriminalization of women selling sex um, to men in the 1927 law on venereal disease. And that extends a certain kind of freedom as well. Um, but it, the price there is a plan to uh, use indefinite welfare detention to deal with the continued problem of visible sex work by women, so especially street prostitution. Um, and anyway, the book... Um, you know, kind of goes piece by piece through the various elements of what I see as the settlement. Uh, but yeah, it's a it's a certain kind of constrained sexual freedom for a certain kind of subject who's respectable and middle class and not defined as degenerate. And the language of eugenics really runs through it. And and eugenics enables this deal in some very real ways. So you see in the reform of the sodomy law, um, parliamentarians and, and homosexual activists talking about how 
male prostitutes are degenerate and we need to lock them up, but we don't need to go after respectable middle-class men who are just unfortunately sexually abnormal. Um, and there's something similar, there's a similar discussion around female prostitutes. Um, yeah, but yeah, so that's what I mean by the Weimar settlement. Okay. There's an awful lot to get into there. Uh, you've, you, you know, you referenced a few different parts of the book uh, and, and the book is so complex in many ways. I found your chapter on the venereal disease law of 1927, if I have it correct that I, I found it uh, very representative of the book in many ways, because you seemed to, on the one hand, really build on a lot of the vast scholarship that's already been done on it and give credit to people who've already worked on it for a lot of the uh, great analysis they've done. While simultaneously, you know, you're, you're diverging a little bit and proposing new things. So I was wondering if you could talk about how your interpretation of the venereal diseases law of 1927 differs maybe from those who've written about it in the past. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, so the venereal disease law is is probably um, the portion of the book that had been written about the most by in recent English language scholarship. Julia Ruse wrote a fantastic book about female prostitution in Germany that looks in detail at this law. Annette Tim's book also touched on it. Um, there are a number of other, um, Victoria Harris, um, you know, there's a, there a bunch of people who've um, written on it. And I tried in this chapter to just make an intervention in that literature um, rather than, because I think other people had re made really good points about the law. Um, so my argument is that somewhat contrary to what some other people had argued, the 1927 reform is not just a decriminalization of female prostitution and therefore a win for female prostitutes. Um, it's not a granting of the right to sell sex because, and I argue that the reason I argue that is that if you look at the broader discourse around it, particularly in the way feminists are writing about this reform, the plan was to eradicate female prostitution. Um, like uh, left of center feminists are pretty instrumental in drafting this law. Although the Catholic center party also voted for it, which is I think really interesting and is, and, and um, maybe we can talk more about the Catholic center party, but um, the Zentrum, uh, the social democratic uh, parliamentarians who are, um, former or, or current social workers who work with female prostitutes, and then the, the whole branch of the mainstream feminist movement um, that called itself abolitionism, but, but was um, by which they meant they wanted to abolish state-regulated prostitution, um, which, which was the legal regime that obtained before the reform came in. Um, when those people write about female prostitutes, they don't write about, they, they don't write like, you know, these are just working class women who are providing a service or these are working class women and this is their job. And I don't like their choice of career, but you know, they have a right to do this. Like they have a right to do with consenting adults have a right to use their bodies in, in, in how they see fit as long as they're not hurting anyone or which is kind of Hiller's position. Um, 
those you know middle class feminists are not saying that about female prostitutes they're the middle class feminists are talking about eradicating female prostitution um and if it's hard to tell what the the sex workers themselves thought but there are a couple of of documents that attest to their point of view um one of one of which is a petition that was written by i think signed by 30 women in berlin about what they thought the government should do vis-a-vis this reform. Um, and Julia Roos also looks at the petition, and then I looked at it too. Um, but if you look at documents like that and a couple of other documents, it doesn't seem like female prostitutes wanted to eradic- eradicate female prostitution. It seems like they were working class women who didn't have a lot of options in terms of employment, and they felt that this was their best the best job they could get. And they did not want, um, some of them I think wanted to leave prostitution, but some of them did not. Um, so the point of view of the feminist reformers was really different from the point of view of the sex workers themselves. And the feminist reformers have this vision of a companion reform, um, which uh, was a preventative detention law. They and, and there's a very long history of this in Germany that stretches prior to Weimar and after Weimar. Um, there's a great book on it, actually, uh, the long history of preventative deten- welfare detention. Um, oh, you know, actually, I shouldn't use that term because it's the Nazi. I'm going to get confused with Nazi with protective custody. Anyway, uh, okay, <laughs> edit this part. Um, anyway, so they so. Uh, the reformers who fought and succeeded in getting this decriminalization of prostitution through anticipated that after prostitution was decriminalized, they would be able to save female prostitutes from prostitution, that social workers would go out and get them off the streets and get them into other jobs. And they knew that not all of the female prostitutes were going to be okay with that, that some female prostitutes would be, in their language, incorrigible. Um, and their plan was to lock those people up <laughs> indefinitely if need be. And they also talk about how those women who don't want to leave prostitution are degenerate or they're, they're zvaksin, they're feeble-minded, um, or they're, um, they have psychopathic inferiorities. These were, these were actual like psychiatric terms that were current in that moment that meant that, um, the people in question had a diminished intellectual capacity, especially when it came to questions of morality and that they could not be trusted to make decisions about sex. So they had to be um, put into these detention, these um, holding institutions. Um, They're never able to get preventative detention off the ground. um, But uh, there's a lot of talk about it when that law passed in 1927. so that's that, and that to me, in a in a microcosm, is the Weimar settlement. It's it's a certain kind of freedom for some people at the direct expense of other people who are defined as um, uh, not having, you know, congenitally incapable of making good choices. Um, so there's a lot. The, the use of these categories of disability is really important, um, and that chapter just looks at both sides of that. Um, there's also a section on the, how in, um, you know, kind of creepy the venereal disease law itself was. Um, and, and I think other scholars had noted that too, but it gives the police 
um, you know, somewhat broad powers in the interest of, well, it gives public health workers somewhat broad powers in the interest of public health to track down people who are supposedly knowingly spreading venereal disease. Um, it's a response to what was thought to be an epidemic of syphilis. I'm, I'm actually starting a new project that looks at the AIDS crisis in the 80s. And um, it's really interesting to, to look at the contrast between how syphilis is treated and then how AIDS is treated. But um, anyway, so I basically, my message is that the, that the Weimar state it is intrusive and, and um, invasive in this instance, and, and that that does create a certain kind of sexual freedom for some people, that it's, it's both liberatory and anti-liberatory in, in, in the same complex dynamic. Um, that, that's the contribution to these other studies, which, you know, at least in my eye, had tended to kind of fall out on one side or the other. And you, you mentioned that you might want to expand a little bit on why the Catholic Center Party uh, you know, voted for that law. And maybe we could also use that as a segue or an opportunity for you to just talk a little bit about the constellation of political parties and um, how they came down on both the venereal diseases law of 1927 or the vote on the uh the vote to repeal the sodomy law of 1929. Uh, what, how did the different political parties uh, stand on these issues and what sorts of coalitions might have emerged? Yeah. So this is kind of one of the, the, one of the big things that led me around to talking about this as a settlement that you see parties that are relatively conservative voting for what seem like relatively progressive reforms on sexuality. The, so the Catholic center party, which I find I just find them. I don't know if you've looked, if you've encountered them at all in your work, but they're fascinating. I yeah. I almost want I. The problem is like if you wrote a book on them, no one would read. Like only the five of us who are excited would read it. But it's a. But, <laughs> I, I'd be one of them, but. <laughs> it's, so it's a. I, people really remember political Catholicism as conservative, and it often is. But but the. The Zentrum in Germany in the in Weimar is quite middle of the road and sometimes left of center um, and pretty democratic up until the very end, I argue. I, there, the, the other people, I think, would disagree with that. Um, it, it depends on how you read Bruning. Uh, but, um, yeah, they're, in, they're interesting. They're interesting. Um, so they're this Catholic party that... Uh, helps to found the democracy and then is the the single the party that is most often in government throughout the Weimar years it's the center party and some in some ways the center party is the party of Weimar um, and they voted to uh, abolish state regulated prostitution in 1927 and rather to to decriminalize female prostitution in 1927 the Catholic center party voted for that Um the repeal of the sodomy law, which never becomes law because the parliament collapsed, uh, but a committee voted in 1929 to repeal the law against male-male sex. The center party voted against that repeal, but the, the key vote was cast by a member of the right-of-center liberal party who was then in his 80s, um, Wilhelm Kahl, who's a, who was a law professor and then a parliamentarian. Um, 
so in that case as well, there's this person who is relatively middle of the road and democratic, but also conservative who um, takes kind of a surprising position. And, and this led me to, to ask, you know, what exactly are these reforms going to do? Like how left of center are they? Um, how much are they going to challenge the status quo? And what I, what I came to see was that uh, they're, they are going to change the status quo, but they're also preserving really important things that are important to social conservatives are being preserved here. And, and actually progressives agree that they should be preserved, that the, the public sphere should be free of female sex work. Every, pretty much everybody agrees on that. Um, I mean, it's, it's kind of hard to follow the logic as to why you would then decriminalize female prostitution, but, but they did think that that was the best way to get female prostitution out of the public eye. Um, yeah, and then the center, the center party, I think, is um, often misread as this this um, anti-democratic, quasi-fascist force, especially in the final years of the republic. Uh, and I, I just don't don't agree with that. I, I find it to be it's a pretty diverse group of people, but they generally are pretty moderate and middle of the road, although conservative on some social issues and they can be extraordinarily conservative like on bathing suits they're very <laughs> and they're they're always working with the bishops right um and the bishops are very upset about bathing about skimpy bathing suits but um yeah they're they're kind of an interesting player in this mix it gets to be a, it's a very complicated political constellation in Weimar anyway there are a, a number of different parties and they come into coalition, go out of coalition, and they shift over time. So the nationalists become more conservative or, or the nationalists become quasi-fascist, right, over time. Um, the center moves to the right. Um, but yeah, so it, it um, it's hard to kind of keep all the players straight. But uh, after thinking about this for a while, I started to see this pattern emerge that they're, they're, they're compromising. Um, and then I asked, well, okay, what makes them ha relatively happy with this compromise? In your chapter on the Ernst Röhm scandal of the early 30s, in some ways, I think fits in with what you're just talking about, in the sense that you, you seem to argue that parties all over the political spectrum seem to at least have some sort of consensus in, in, in terms of why they dismissed the scandal as not being particularly important or an important thing to focus on. So I was wondering if you could talk about that, the Ernst Röhm scandal of the early 30s and how that fit into your overall conclusions. Yeah, yeah. So this was a place where I, there were a couple of moments in the research for this book where I found, I didn't find what I was expecting to find and the project really shifted in a direction that I didn't expect it to go. Um, so Ernst Röhm the was the head of the SA, as I'm sure like most everybody, I mean, anyone who's listened to this much of the podcast probably knows who he was, but uh, <laughs> he, was a, he was like a leading figure of the Nazi party in Weimar. He's murdered on Hitler's orders in 1934 after they come to power. Um, but Ro so Rome, uh, we have these incredible letters that he wrote about his sexuality. So we know from his own letter, private letters, that 
in the mid 20s or thereabouts when he was living in Berlin working for the party, he got in touch with the fact that he was homosexual and he identified, self-identified um, as a homoerotic or a homosexual. Uh, and he started going to um, the subcultural institutions in Berlin. He even joined um, the Bund für Menschenrechts, the League for Human Rights, the which is the largest of, I haven't talked at all about them, but they're, they're a very large homosexual emancipation group that's founded after World War I in Germany that Herschel did not have much to do with at all. Um, anyway, he joined that group. So he got their publications, which is just incredible because the Nazi party, of course, was like, deeply, deeply anti-homosexual. Um, and Rome was very, there's a, there's, um, Eleanor Hancock has written on this and I, I agree with what she found that he's pretty careful to keep his sexuality secret within the ranks of the Nazi party, except when he happens to have connections with other people in the party who are also men who have sex with men. I don't think... I'm I'm starting to work on this in my new projects, but I don't think that there were like that that queer men were disproportionately represented in the Nazi Party. I think you find them everywhere um, in all political parties. Um, but anyway, so Rome um, in 1932 was very publicly outed by the Social Democrats in an effort to keep the Nazis from winning um, elections. And um, I was interested, um, I knew that that scandal had happened, that it had, co it had come out that he was homosexual, um, and I was interested in it. And other people have written on it. Um, and what they had found was that his sexuality was widely reported in the press when the social Democrats, the social Democrats got a hold of the letters he had written and published them, which is why we have them now. Um, and other people who had looked at this had said, yeah, it was all over the place. You know, he was denounced for being homosexual and people really linked fascism and homosexuality together in the press in this period. And it was a huge um, deal. And uh, for me, that was really interesting because I was interested in how, you know, a queer analysis could shed a different kind of light on the fall of the Republic and the rise of the Nazis. So I started looking at it. And what I found is that actually the, the, the only press who reported the publication of the letters was the Social Democrats press and the Communists press. Um, so the leftists attacked Rome for being homosexual. And, and they had been doing that actually before the letters came out. And they had attacked other party figures, including Hitler, for being homosexual before the Rome letters were published. Um, but the main other presses, so every paper in Germany had a tacit or explicit party affiliation in this period. And you read, and, and people, if you wanted a diversity of views, you would read more than one paper. It was understood that Vorwärts was like, the, is the social democratic paper giving you their perspective. Um, Liberal papers, conservative papers, just ignore, the Catholic press ignored the Rome scandal when it happened. Um, so that was very curious to me. Um, and then when I looked in more depth, I saw that 
there was a moment when these other papers that were ignoring it were forced to deal with it because this incredible fist fight happened in the in the Reichstag building. Um, the guy who published Rome's letters like went to the cafe in the Reichstag building to meet a social democratic member of parliament. And he was in the cafe waiting for the person or, um, when a bunch of like Rome's right hand guy came in with a bunch of other Nazi um, delegates and they recognized him and they, and they beat the guy right there in the building. And then um, anyway, I won't go, there was this whole, there was a whole, they basically had to shut down the parliament because there was a huge brawl. Um, the police came and a, a number of Nazis were arrested. There were trials. Okay. So all of, so when the papers, the papers could not report on that. And when they reported on that, they had to explain why um, the Nazi parliamentary deputies wanted to beat up this guy who was in the cafe. And then they had to explain that he had published these letters. And then that raised the question of well, what was in the letters. So it, so the press was forced to take some kind of a position on Rome's sexuality. And um, what I found is that and, and this was incredible. To, I, you know, I find this incredible um, that Catholic Catholic papers still basically ignored it, um, and conservative papers, uh, some came out and said, "Look, there are accusations that he's homosexual. This is a big problem for the Nazis. Hitler needs to deal with this." Um, but a lot of conser- the conservative press um, and the liberal press sort of dismissed it and said, look, it's, this isn't really important. Rome's private life isn't important. Even the conservatives were taking that position. I mean, for self-serving reasons, right? By that time, they, they're in bed with the fascists. But um, I just found that incredible that like a conservative paper could be like, oh, we don't really care that this guy's homosexual. <laughs> and to me, that is that that just shows like how um, settled that question was in German politics by the early 30s that, that, that even for instrumental reasons died in the wall conservatives could be dismissive of, of um, the they don't deny it. They don't de- it, it's very hard to deny that he's that he is homosexual because there was a failed libel suit um, but they just sort of don't think they, they tell their readers it's not important um, uh, so that that really, uh, I think, upends a lot of what we assumed about sexual sexuality in late Weimar politics. It makes it hard to see how, therefore, the republic fell because Germans were so upset because because Weimar had been so libertine. Um, if if conservatives don't care that Rome's homosexual, um, and it also you know, makes that the the Nazi persecutions of gay men. Um, just seem all the more troubling and in need of um, kind of further study because it's a, it seems like a real moment of rupture, um, 1933, in terms of the politics of male-male sex. Um, but yeah, I went on to argue that, that, that the, the very common idea that part of why the Nazis came to power is because they were riding this backlash against Weimar's openness towards sexuality, particularly homosexuality, that that just cannot possibly be true because the in 1932, 
one of the most famous homosexuals in Germany is Ernst Röhm, the, the one, a leading Nazi who Hitler declines to dismiss. Um, and yet the Nazis come to power anyway. So when people go out and vote Nazi, you know, they're arguably they're voting Nazi. They're looking the other way on the Rome scandal and they're voting Nazi anyways. We've taken up a lot of your time to this point. So I'd like to transition to our final question. And I did promise to leave you some time to talk about this. And that is, I would be really interested to hear on what projects you're working on now. And if I'm not mistaken, you mentioned possibly two different projects during the course of the interview. So I'd be interested to hear all about all that you're working on now. Yeah, yeah. So I'm I'm um, working on two book projects, and then I have a collection or two articles that I'm working on as well. The articles are wrapping up this Weimar project. Yes, like the book's been out for <laughs> a couple of years, but, um, <laughs> and I, it's, it's kind of fun to work. So it, it's, it's material that I couldn't find a way to put in the book. And now it's grown into almost a critique of the book. Um, and it's kind of fun to have, to have another pass at some of this stuff. Um, I think if I could write the book again, I would write more about Hitler's other politics. <laughs> I think I, I might, <laughs> my reading of him may be a little bit too reparative. Um, and I was always frustrated that race wasn't more central to the book. There's, there's a good deal of material on anti-Semitism in the politics of sex in Weimar, but I had wanted the politics of imperialism and blackness to be, a bit, and whiteness to be a bigger part of the book. Um, and I, I couldn't, and I did research um, on black Germans and on um, the politics of sex and empire. And I, I couldn't find a way to get that in. And I now kind of see how I could have done it. But um, anyway, so these articles are about that. Um, there's a, there's been a little wave of scholarship on Hirschfeld himself uh, that has got me thinking about some stuff like, especially Heike Bauer's book. Um, uh, Robert Tobin just published um, an important book that touches on Hirschfeld. So um, uh, Ralph Leck published one as well. There are a couple of things that have come out. And then I also have a project on the Nazi period. Um, so I have that article in the HR. Uh, and I'm my plan now is to build that up into a short book um, that is similar in its kind of macro analytic structure to this book. So looking at women and men together, looking at using queer and trans as analytic lenses, thinking about race and class, um, and trying to make a contribution to a pretty big literature. There's a lot on the persecution of gay men in Nazi Germany, although not that much on women or uh, trans people. Um, and I also have a plan for a book on queer politics from the AIDS crisis to civil partnerships. Um, that's further afield, but that I have started working on a little bit. I started working on the AIDS crisis. Yeah, it's hard, you know, it's hard starting another book. <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine. And this one was so good and it was so... Um 
you know, you're, you're arguing three or four different, different major arguments throughout the book in many ways. So it's, uh, it was quite an undertaking too. Thanks. Yeah. It's like, it's so gratifying. I feel like you spend so many years alone, like slaving over the thing. And yeah, it's just, it's, thank you for letting me talk about it and asking me about it. And, um, I'm glad that, yeah, I, I, I think this book is like really dense and kind of complicated and, um, that's a cool thing about it, but yeah, it's like a lot of, it's a lot of work. Maybe the next book should be kind of keep it simple, stupid. (laughs) 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 Um, yeah. (laughs) All right, Laurie. Well, well, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me today and I really enjoyed reading the book and I can assure our listeners that we didn't get to everything in the book in the interview. So you really need to either purchase a copy of the book, order a copy of the book for your library. There's lots we didn't get to. Uh, Lori makes very interesting argument at the end of the book against the notion of a moral backlash leading to the rise of Nazism. So that's a little hook for people to, you know, get the book and read it. Yeah, there's a chapter on lesbians that talks about trans too. That should have been longer, but yeah, thanks. Thanks for the shout out. Yeah, and your and the American Historical Review article too. I've used and had my students read, and they really oh, enjoyed that cool. as well. So people should. Look. Oh, that's cool. In any case, uh, I really appreciate you taking the time with me today, Laurie. And we'll uh, we've taken up so much of your time. We'll let you go now. Thank you very much. Cool. Thanks a lot, Michael. Thanks for talking. Sure. So you all have been listening to an interview on the New Books in German Studies podcast. This is part of the New Books Network family of podcasts. My name is Michael O'Sullivan, and we look forward to sharing more interviews with you about books in the field of German studies in the future. Thank you.